The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Yourself? Doing well, Father. Thanks for being here. Very well. Father, I uh, received a request for us to mention the upcoming pro-life dinner that we will be hosting right here at uh, Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood. This, uh, this annual dinner is to benefit the, uh, I believe it's the 36th annual, uh, rosary, pro-life rosary procession that we will be having here in downtown Cincinnati this, this coming January. And, uh, so that dinner will be Saturday, November 16th, again, right here at, uh, Immaculate Conception across the, across the, um, in the, the school building in St. Susanna Hall. So, Father, could you, you speak a few words on this dinner and the importance of, of the fundraising activities for the uh, rosary procession that will take place in January in downtown Cincinnati? Well, Tom, you've pretty much said it all. The, um, the importance of the dinner has to do with the importance of the rosary procession. We've been doing this for over a third of a century now. Year by year, rain or shine, often snow flurries. Yes. <clears throat> bitter cold, anywhere from 600 to over a 1,000 people have taken part at a given time. We've had hecklers there. We've had all kinds of things going on. It doesn't stop these intrepid prayers of the rosary, though. <clears throat> and it's quite a quite an event here. Pro, I'd say it's the uh, premier public um, pro-life manifestation uh, of the year here in Cincinnati, going right through down the heart of downtown Cincinnati. And uh, I'm very grateful to Father Greenwell for having uh, taken taken up the cause here, and he's the one who is uh, leading the fundraiser, the pro-life dinner. It's generally well attended, but uh, never well attended enough, considering the importance of it. And that's why we're mentioning it here now because uh, it does take a certain amount of funding to make this rosary procession happen through downtown Cincinnati and have this uh, pro-life manifestation. And the dinner is a perfect opportunity for pro-life people to get together and uh, to um, uh, not only enjoy the evening together, but also know they're funding a very important event here. I understand, Tom, that your intention is, is to be there as well. Yes, sir. So you'll be there signing autographs. <laughs> that should be quite a draw. Oh, boy. <laughs> I imagine people will be flying in from all parts of the globe for that. So we'd like it to be very successful, and that can only happen if uh, you are there. So please uh, make the effort, not just you. I'm talking good to members of our, our audience here to make the effort to be there and make it happen. Uh, call... Well, I guess we can actually post some information online, I suppose, right, can, uh, together with the show here, mm -hmm. as to who to call to make reservations for the pro-life dinner. Yes, Father, we have a, a flyer that we can post. Uh, we can actually post that on the screen now, and we also can, can post a, a link to that in the description. Now I'll have all, all of the uh, details with regard to the time and the uh, the reservation information and all of that. Mm -hmm. But, Father, could you, um, you know, there, there's a very, very popular, very famous uh, pro-life march that takes place every year in Washington, D.C., at our nation's capital. Could you kind of, what is the difference between that pro-life march that happens in Washington, D.C., and our pro-life uh, rosary procession that takes place here in Cincinnati? Could you kind of compare? Well, our, our rosary procession is exactly that. I mean, we do have some speeches that are given by prominent uh, pro-life dignitaries and uh, pro-life warriors. But the primary focus is on prayer, begging God's mercy. And um, we pray for our country. We pray for the children who are marked for death uh, by abortion. We pray for their mothers, too, that God will move their hearts to spare their children and themselves this terrible crime. Um, the pro-life uh, uh, effort in Washington, D.C., a march for life, is a very uh, 
non-homogeneous group of people, many of them shouting uh, slogans as they walk along. I'd like to think all of them are there, motivated by the natural law, in a sense of uh, <clears throat> the fact that God is the, the master of life, and abortion is, a, is, is murder, the taking of an innocent life of a child. But uh, prayer is, I would say, not the primary focus. The primary focus is to have a pro-life demonstration as a political, a political statement, okay? <clears throat> not something bad in itself. But um, when we're there, and we do take part uh, in the March for Life in Washington, D.C., we start out by having a traditional mass for our uh, traditional Catholic people who arrive from New York and from Cincinnati and other parts of the country. And then we go and join the, uh, the March for Life, and we pray the rosary, pray 15 decades of the rosary as we walk along. But again... Rather than all being unified in praying the rosary, we find it very difficult to pray. As some, you know, you're in the midst of groups shouting various slogans at various times, uh, and uh, others sounding trumpets and beating drums as you're trying to be heard by your own people praying the rosary. It makes it a little difficult uh, to actually unify in praying the rosary thoughtfully. But we, I, I must hand it, People are very valiant, and they, they try. They, they uh, try not to let all of those distractions, you know, take their minds or hearts away from the, the real matter at hand, and that is beseeching God's mercy. So um, they, I, I believe that they draw a lot of uh, blessings from heaven in their valiant efforts there um, to bring the rosary to the March for Life in Washington, D.C., and... As I tell them each year, I, I believe your efforts of uh, getting there, the sacrifice you make and washing, not only uh, uh, financial uh, sacrifices, but also the time and the effort <clears throat> and discomfort, sometimes of walking through some cold, bitter weather, uh, will actually yield results in saving lives. And after all, I mean, the entire March for Life in Washington, D.C. might draw a million people. And if we knew that we would save a million babies from abortion by being there, I, I know that people would be very gratified and believe it was worth every bit of effort they made. If they knew that they would save one baby's life, I believe the same million people would be grateful for that and still be willing to make that sacrifice because they appreciate the value of, of that one life, God-given life. We also have to realize that in being pro-life, we're not just saying <clears throat> we want God to give life to human beings the way we would give, expect, you know, have gerbils or, or uh, dogs or cats or other household pets. We, when our Lord uh, offers life, he, he wants to give us everlasting life. So if God is going to spare a life as a result of our prayers, <clears throat> we have every reason to hope that he will spare that life for its earthly existence so that it will have everlasting life as well. We have to have that confidence in God's mercy that he will uh, hear and, and answer the prayers that we offer him and the sacrifices we offer to him by taking part in the rosary procession here uh, and also by uh, taking part in the March for Life and praying there as well. Mm, definitely. Well, again, that uh, that pro-life dinner will be uh, very soon, very soon, Saturday, November 16th at, at 5.30 p.m. And then uh, we definitely encourage all of our viewers to come to that if possible, and also the rosary procession that will take place in January. So. I find it is very encouraging to our young people. Uh, every year they comment how amazed they are, especially those who are there in Washington, D.C. for the first time how amazed they are to see all of those pro-life people from all over the country. And they realize, you know, we're not alone in this. And they, then they see that, no doubt, the majority, perhaps even the, the vast majority, of those present there are under 30 years of age. I right. mean, they're the younger people. Right. And uh, they're, they're really taken aback in a good way to see all of these young people who've come from all over the country to stand up for the sanctity of life and to insist that God is the, the giver of life and the master of human life 
and that has to be respected. And um, they 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 say we are the pro-life generation. Well, I I find that to be very encouraging for our young people to see that. Okay. Uh, what we'd like to do is try to be the leaven in that group and try to bring people back to more and more realize the it's it's not the politics that will save us; it's the prayer that will save. It's, it's God's grace that will save us. Certainly, certainly. Well, Father, another thing that I wanted to mention on tonight's program is uh, this beautiful little book that I have here, The uh, the Message of Our Lady of Fatima. This is a, uh, a book that was published some years ago, but, Father, I understand that you had it reprinted. And we actually have uh, multiple hard copies of this book still still left uh, for, for purchase. We have uh, information on our website. If any of our viewers are interested in purchasing this book, they can uh, just send me an email with, with any of the... Uh, the details there. But Father, could you just, just speak a few words about this book, The Message of Our Lady of Fatima? Why why is this message so important? You know, in, in this uh, this reprint that, that you have here, the uh, introduction letter that you penned yourself, you wrote that uh, our Blessed Mother's appearances at Fatima, Portugal, constitute the most momentous events in modern history. That's uh, quite a claim to make, Father. So why are uh, why is our, the message of Our Lady of Fatima, why is that such a momentous event. Why is that so important that people understand what she said? Well, Our Lady was sent by her son, our Lord, to address the world, and primarily the Catholics in the world. Because when she was appealing to them uh, concerning the things they need to do in order to remedy the, the great evils of the time, not only present, but impending also in the future, Our Lady was definitely appealing to the Catholic mind, the Catholic conscience, those who had the Catholic faith, and uh, would listen to her voice. At least this was the hope. Um, <clears throat> so obviously the fact that she's sent from heaven by our Lord to appeal to mankind um, to uh, remedy present evils so as to avoid future evils, that's, that's very significant. Uh, our Lady came in the, in the midst of World War I, and... Um, forecast that if we did not amend our ways, stop sinning, offending God, if we did not consecrate ourselves and uh, and individually, but also Russia itself to the, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, um, which had, was supposed to be done by the Supreme Pontiff of the Catholic Church. She mentioned Pius XI um, and the greater war that would come. Right. Um, that, uh, you know, there, there'd be terrible evils that would follow, but we could avert that. So she was giving us a warning as to what was going to happen if we did not take action. And she told us exactly what the action was we had to take. Okay, so that's why I see these were a moment, momentous events, because this was a, a definitely a turning point in human history. That Our Lady was saying, <clears throat> this is what will happen if you... Do what I ask of you, and this is what will happen if you don't. <clears throat> and the difference was not only the difference between night and day, it was the difference between heaven and hell. So uh, that's why I see these momentous events. And what we see that has happened now with World War II and all of the perversions that have come into our society, and um, I mean, all of the political battles we're witnessing right now, all of the societal battles and all the rest, these all go back to the spiritual battle. And that's what our Blessed Mother was addressing there. Mm -hmm. So um, you can't become, there's nothing more momentous than that, you know, as a matter of uh, whether mankind is going to be faithful to God or not and the consequences of that choice. Mm -hmm. And Father, you know, with this whole topic of, of Fatima and the apparitions that, that took place there over 100 years ago now, there is, as you well know, there's so much misinformation, so much confusion surrounding this whole topic. And I think one of the reasons why this book is so great is, is because it does such a wonderful job of dispelling all, all of the, the confusion. It's very, very simple. Uh, it's a very easy read. I believe it's only around 200 pages. Uh, it's large print. There, there are pictures in there. There's a lot of great, great pictures and photographs of uh, the actual places where this, where these events took place and of the, the persons involved. And, and I think this book, it just does such, such a great job. Of it captures the simplicity of the message. Exactly. Of Our Lady. Mm -hmm. And of Jacinta, uh, well, Lu Lucia, right, and also the the lives, even though um, 
even though Francesco and Jacinta mm -hmm. did not comment and did not have a great deal to say, what they lived there after the apparitions is very, yeah. very telling, especially Jacinta. Yes. When she was hospitalized in Lisbon, uh, Our Lady's appearances to her there have given us much of the information we have of the message of Fatima. Uh, even after the six apparitions that we, you know, referred to as the apparitions of Fatima were finished, uh, there were still messages that were given to Jacinta. And uh, this little girl relayed them, and they're very powerful. Definitely very powerful. So there's an enormous amount of information in that book that people need to know. And there, there are people I, I, I've heard of who were fallen away Catholics, or not even Catholics at all, but who read the book and were very, very moved by it. Some of them even moved to convert because it began a process of conversion for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they could read what was written there, and they related it to reality in the world today, and they saw there's truth here. And I, I think that the word powerful is a perfect fit for this, because like you said, I mean, just reading, um, I thought in particular, the, the life of, of Jacinta and everything that she went through and uh, many of the, the comments that, that she made, I thought, were just, um, they're, they're really rather striking in reading those. And I don't know how one could, could read those and not, not be moved uh, to, to perform some good. But I, I thought um, just another point on this book is, is how great the, uh, how thorough the research is and, and all of the uh, quotations and everything that, that is provided is, is just spot on and it does such a, a great job of just keeping to the point you know not not kind of uh devolving into all the conspiracy theories and everything it just gives the simple truth of, of exactly what happened and uh i you know we t we talk about this this our lady's message of fatima uh nearly every other program and i, I think it's it's just so important to to just constantly go over this because as as you said before you know this is what our lady requested of catholics and so it's it can be rather um shall i say um you know some kind of hypocrisy for one to call themselves a traditional catholic and then not do what our lady specifically explicitly requested at mm -hmm. fatima and i think that one could do no better place than start than by actually finding out what our lady requested right right well there are many many books oh yeah written about <laughs> fatima yes but ultimately, they all have to go back to what is said in this book. Yes. They all must derive there from that. Mm -hmm. Everything else that is written about that is, is, is developed from what is in this book. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, again, Father, so we have a few copies, uh, hard copies of this left again, if anyone... Oh, well, but it's not hardbound. It's, it's still uh, right. you know, paperback. <laughs> right. But when you say hard copies, you mean not digital. Because right. there is also, it's digitally yes. produced. Yes, right? yes. We have an ebook uh, version of this, which is available on our website, on the homepage of our website. Our, our viewers can, can see the ebook version of this uh, message of Our Lady of Fatima. So I thought that was uh, rather... You know, perfect. even this, the simplicity of this is the key to its power. And even that uh, somehow is conveyed, there, there are typo, typographical errors in the original mm -hmm from which this book was uh, taken, actually. And those typographical errors have been reproduced in the book. And there are those who want to clean them up. And I understand that. I mean, we want, from an editing point of view, to get away from typographical errors. But in a way, there's a certain charm there. Even there, a kind of a childlike simplicity in that, uh, which shows kind of an authenticity to it, too. Uh, that, um, you know, one can try to produce this spiffy book, you know, with all the fanciness to it. But this, again, has a childlike simplicity to it that I think is the key to its power. Um, and hopefully its influence, too. Definitely. Well, Father, something else I wanted to uh, get into tonight was uh, this this whole idea of the uh, the Amazon Senate, which recently concluded, and the whole uh, Pachamama controversy that, that mm. took place with the idols being removed from the church and thrown into the Tiber River. Uh, the, the man who actually carried this out just recently revealed himself uh, in a video. His uh, name was Alexander Chugulo. And um, he recently came out with a video father and said some, some rather interesting things in there. He said that he does not regret the decision at all. He believes that this was certainly the right thing to do because he saw in these uh, Pachamama idols some kind of idolatrous uh, worship that was totally un-Catholic, totally contrary to the, the first commandment of God. 
And uh, he, he had some interesting comments in this video, Father, and uh, one of the things he said was uh, that the most important thing Catholics can do right now is to stay, quote, really Catholic. And uh, he kind of gave a definition of that, and he said that we must know our faith. Uh, he recommended that Catholics read many books that explain the faith. Uh, they plumb the depths of prayers. They understand the Holy Mass and go to confession and pray the rosary daily. Uh, he also had a comment on uh, on the idea of, of tradition, and he said that tradition was the first uh, backbone of the church. He said that it shows us how we used to understand the Word of God. Um, so he, he said a lot of interesting things uh, such as that in his video, Father. So what's your take on this uh, this Alexander Chugalo fellow, what he did, and, uh, and kind of the subsequent events after he has revealed himself? What do you make of all of this? Well, Alexander Chugalo... Uh, is a Viennese, okay? He's from the area of Vienna, of Austria, which someone pointed out is rather interesting because uh, the mastermind of the of the Instrumentum Laboris, the working document of the Synod, w w where it started, uh, its deliberations was uh, uh, Novus Ordo Bishop Edwin Kreutler, also Austrian, okay? So, um, uh, you seem to have Austria kind of coming at this synod from both angles here. And, uh, that means a lot to me because I, I lived in Austria for a brief time and studied there and loved the country very much and the Austrian people too, actually. And, um, but, uh, the Chukuel, Alexander Chukuel was a convert from, uh, from Lutheranism. As a young lad, and um, he, um, he just recently married, I guess within the last year or so. 26 years old. Um, it's interesting, I think, that he, he came out just recently now and, and said, Now I will announce who is behind this deed. I didn't come out earlier because I wanted the focus to be on the deed itself, not on the people behind it. But now that there's been a lot of, a lot of support, I don't think it's just emboldened him to come out. I think he sees the need to speak out because now he has an opportunity to be heard. Uh, is there a certain danger in this for him? Possibly. I mean, he's, uh, is there going to be some kind of a warrant out for his arrest in, in Italy? I don't know. I mean, one has to factor these things in if there's, um, they're out to hold him responsible for theft and uh, vandalism and who knows what else. He doesn't seem to be concerned about it. <clears throat> there are those who are somewhat ambivalent about him and in his past and his history. <clears throat> um, they see connections, you know, in the past in his life, that he's, uh, uh, which they don't see as being very traditional Catholic. Okay, but the message that he's giving right now, at least does seem very firmly traditional Catholic. It seems to be sending the message, we have to follow the traditional Catholic faith. And that seems to be what he's saying motivated him uh, because he saw these Pachamama idols as exactly that and um, therefore contrary to the first commandment, as he says, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have false gods besides me or before me. He saw this as a violation of the first commandment and he uh, was in Rome uh, with the Synod, right, following the Synod, went back to Austria, thought about it for about a week, and then decided, I've got to do something about this. So uh, flew back to Rome and went into the churches. We saw the videos of him going into the church, uh, Maria and Transportina, gathering up these, these idols, taking them to the Tiber, and throwing them in the Tiber. Some people ask, well, why didn't he burn them? And I say, well... <clears throat> that might have been a good idea if there was a bonfire nearby. You could throw them in or you could start a bonfire. But I think the idea was not necessarily to create such a... I don't think their idea was to do something that would create an immediate sensation and draw attention to them. But they wanted to make these things disappear. Uh, traditionally or historically, throwing something or someone in the Tiber was considered to be a form of rejection of them, like sort of like an ultimate refusal or rejection of them. 
bodies of martyrs were thrown into the Tiber. As I mentioned, the Masons wanted to take the body of Pope Pius IX and throw it in the Tiber rather than allow it to have a proper burial. It was a form of contempt for someone <clears throat> to discard, dispose of them that way. And I don't know that's what, if that's what Chugul had in mind, <clears throat> but uh, nonetheless, that's what was done. They were thrown in the Tiber, and then some of them recovered later, as we were told. Um, was Chugul right in seeing these things as demonic? Because I think he actually uses the expression, kind of demonic. <clears throat> well, you know, we were being told by the... Uh, the leaders of the Synod, that these things were actually symbols of fertility, but also symbols of the Blessed Mother, Mary in the Amazon. This is like a, a statuette of Our Lady of the Amazon. <clears throat> well, never has the Church represented Our Blessed Mother like that. No. Right? But not only that, they weren't telling us the truth. They don't. I mean, this is what they're modernists. They, they don't tell the truth. Truth doesn't even mean the same thing to them, right? And so, I mean, where has, has the Blessed Mother, Our Lady, the Mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, ever had thousands of children ritually sacrificed to appease her anger? But Pachamama has. I mean, this, this, this pagan idol, uh, this, this demon goddess that they fabricated here, has over the centuries had hundreds, thousands of children put to death to appease her anger or to coax her to be to grant the fruits of the earth. Okay, and it was even considered to be an honor to be chosen to be slaughtered. <laughs> okay, drugged to death as a child, frozen then frozen or killed otherwise, <clears throat> to be to be chosen as a, to be sacrificed to this idol. I mean. Where is the connection between that and what we Catholics believe of our Blessed Mother, the Mother of our, our Savior? There is none. It's absurd. It's a blasphemy to even suggest it. <clears throat> but they not only suggest it, they, they uh, promulgate it, you know. Uh, they want these things to go on tour now, <laughs> to actually go on tour throughout the world, proclaiming something. Well, they're going to be proclaiming something, all right. And they're going to be proclaiming... Um, <clears throat> The, the paganizing or the, 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 the death of traditional Catholicism, which is what they really want, the death of the traditional Catholic Church, and the creation of their new uh, paganism and, and pagan ritual, this is going to be the, the worship of the New Age, okay, and ultimately lead to the religion of the Antichrist. I mentioned the book, uh, The Lord of the World by Monsignor Robert U. Benson is already forecasting that in a novel back in 1907, but the worship of the mother goddess, right? <clears throat> and uh, it's interesting to note this pact of the catacombs <clears throat> that they've signed as a, well, they're calling it the pact of the catacombs for the common home, for a church with an Amazonian face, poor and servant, prophetic and Samaritan. Well, this was uh, kind of a throwback to the 1965 Pact of the Catacombs, you know, that, that Vatican II, right. at the conclusion of Vatican II, where a bunch of radical leftist um, cardinals and bishops got together, led by Dom Helder Camara, the red bishop, okay, of South America, <clears throat> uh, got together and actually set the church in their mind on a path of radical socialism and revolution and... Um, <clears throat> You know, I mean, Kamara made no bones about it. He, he believed that a, uh, a follower of Christ today should be carrying a, uh, a rifle as a revolutionary. I mean, he was a, uh, an actual bloodthirsty murderer, like Che Guevara type of person, you know. And um, <clears throat> so much for the peace, love, and joy of Vatican II, right? But uh, now they've gotten together under the leadership of this Humez and Kreutler and the rest of them, in the same place, in the catacomb of Santa, Santa Priscilla, no, I'm sorry, Santa Domitilla, or what sometimes they just call the catacombs of Domitilla. Okay, and they got together under the underground, in the underground basilica there, and they signed this pact now. And you know what? It sounds exactly like this, uh, this ecological or, um, 
economic uh, Gnostic environmentalism. Mm. If you read that, <clears throat> it's all about it's all about the earth and <clears throat> what we make of the earth, right? And the mother goddess and how we owe our existence to the mother goddess, the fertility goddess of Mother Earth and all that. So it, you might you might have taken this straight out of the Lord of the World. <clears throat> this could have produced by by the the liturgist of the Antichrist and Lord of the World, Mr. Francis. And in fact, I guess it was, in a sense, wasn't it? So anyway, Tom, but this is what we're dealing with here, and this is the future. <clears throat> it all really does go back to what you're saying here about the message of Our Lady of Fatima. Our Lady of Fatima was speaking very much, very clearly about consecrating ourselves to our Immaculate Heart. <clears throat> and there's a reason why God wanted us to consecrate ourselves to Mary's, our Blessed Mother's Immaculate Heart. Because the human race was otherwise going to consecrate itself to the fertility goddess represented by Pachamama, the Mother Earth goddess. It's either Our Lady's Immaculate Heart, or it's either this thing, this demon goddess. You know, in the last video, I, I talked about <clears throat> what I referred to rather blindly as Pachamama. And in Washington, D.C. now, kind of our own, this quasi-political goddess, uh, Nancy Pelosi, right here, who is, uh, will not be denied anything she demands. You know, this is what we're told. When Nancy sets her minds to something, she will not be denied. And you see this happening before our very eyes. And I was talking about how she, she is, is kind of like the incarnation of this Pasha, Pasha Obama, or Pasha Mama idol, you know. Bloodthirsty, uh, you know, all of these children being sacrificed in her name and and um, in her under her leadership through abortion and so on. But I've decided that's not that's not adequate. It's not true. That it's not fair to be saying that somehow Nancy Pelosi is kind of the the Pachamama Pachamama of Washington D.C. It's just not fair. <clears throat> Because she resembles more the Indian goddess Kali. I mean, Kali is the goddess with the six arms. Mm -hmm. And she has a, a necklace of skulls around her neck. And in her six hands, she's holding in each hand a different deadly weapon. <clears throat> now, that, that, I think, is much more appropriate. That applies much more to what we're talking about. It's going on in Washington right now. Yeah. But uh, my point in mentioning that is not to be mere, yes, it's not merely being facetious, okay? I'm saying that this is the alternative to what Our Lady has told us at Fatima. This is what's going to become of the world here. <clears throat> if we do not do as Our Lady has asked us, pray the rosary, stop sinning and offending God, consecrate ourselves to her Immaculate Heart, that the worship of the, these evil demon goddesses really is our future, mm -hmm. the future of mankind. So this is the choice between the, 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 the evil, heartless, you know, uh, maleficent or malevolent uh, demon goddesses or the Immaculate Heart of Mary herself. It's a choice we have for heaven. And I, I think it is interesting to note how kind of everything we're talking about tonight does kind of tie together, you know, abortion and the pro-life cause with this Pachamama idol worship and this fertility goddess demon and, uh, you know, the message of Elia Fatima. I think it does all kind of tie together perfectly. But in regards to the, this Pachamama um, idol worship, I, I think uh, not enough is being made of where this is, is taking place. You know, this is... Uh, supposed to be the, the heart of Catholicism right here in Rome, the eternal city, and this is where it's taking place in the, the very, uh, you know, depths of, of the Vatican right there. And it's it's just, it's fascinating to uh, to see, you know, I, I mentioned this before, how, how there are so many Novus Ordo Catholics who just, uh, you know, they, they would stand by and say, well, when they when they have the Mass in the vernacular, then I'll leave the Novus Ordo Church. When they have altar girls and, and priestess, uh, then then I'll leave the church. And it's, what what point do they ever get to? Because, I mean, we're at the point now where this is, um, how much worse can it get, Father? We, we have Well, when they say leave the church, they, they really need to understand they're saying to leave the Novus Ordo, which is not leaving the Catholic Church at all. 
that Novus Ordo has left the Catholic Church, exactly. and they've dragged all these people along with them. Mm -hmm. And these people have to wake up and realize they're being taken for a ride. They've been hijacked by these modernists, modernist monsters, you know, who, who actually are, are, have gone so far, and they're so corrupt, they're actually, actually involved in Satan worship with the wholesale murder of the unborn children as their, their sacrifice of children to the demon gods and goddesses. They have to leave the Novus Ordo to come back to be Catholic again. But what does it take to get someone to, to realize that? Because, I mean, we're at the point now where we, we literally have idol worship going on. And, and when you confront, you know, some of the, the Novus Ordo hierarchy, um, they'll simply say things like, oh, this never happened, even though it's it, it's on video. Well, well even even this gentleman, uh, Her Alexander, right? Chulevig. Um, yeah, says... After what he's done here, I, I understand this. I mean, people can verify it or, or show it's not true. But I understand even he has come out and made the statement, but we have to be loyal and faithful to Francis. Mm -hmm. We have to follow Francis. We have to, you know, be subservient to Francis. Um, but how does that correspond to the action he took there? Because Francis is under Francis that these things came in to the Vatican, came into the churches were uh, actually honored and, and, and adored, worshipped, invoked. And he was horrified when they were taken. Uh, he, he himself has brought this, this potted plant uh, symbolizing Pachamama to the altar, put it on St. Peter's, right? <laughs> the high altar of St. Peter, right over the remains, the, 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 the remains of St. Peter himself, right? Um, and... Um, you know, they're living a contradiction. It's like something does not add up. And the reason is because they are caught on the horns of a dilemma. And they can't understand how to get off the horns of that dilemma. Uh, on the other hand, well, be loyal and faithful to the, the Francis, the Pope, uh, no matter what he may do or, or, or say, <clears throat> we've got to be loyal and absolutely subservient to him. But at the same time, we have to resist him because of all these evil things that he's doing. Okay, they're totally contrary to the Catholic faith. Um, you know, th this this is an internal contradiction here, um, and uh, this dilemma they have to they have to resolve that dilemma. If there's if there is a dilemma in the human mind, if there's a contradiction going on in the human mind between. It's saying, I must do this and I must do that, but I can't do both. They're, 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 one is necessarily opposed to the other, but I must somehow do both. That's everybody saying, well, Matt is saying, I have a choice between two evils here, and I must do both evil things. I can't avoid it. You know? <clears throat> I mean, we, we have in moral theology the... the the, the, what they call the, the lesser of two evils, how you have to, you know, follow the past that, that avoids as much evil as you can, okay? <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I mean, they are at this thing that we have to do this, we have to do that. I have to follow Francis, but Francis wants those idols in the church, and I've got to take them out because they're, they represent apostasy, they're against the first commandment, and they're a, a grave sin against uh, faith and so on. So how do they resolve that? Well, they have to realize, first of all, there's a contradiction somewhere. And the contradiction always involves a fallacy of thought. There's some, something fallacious. There's some fallacy. There's some fact that they've got wrong or some principle they've got wrong, and they're applying their processes wrong, and they've got to find where the fallacy is. <clears throat> is it a fallacy to say that these idols represent a sin against the first commandment of God? Is that wrong? Is there something wrong with their argument there? <clears throat> or is there a fallacy saying that we have to follow Francis no matter what, because he must be the Pope, and the Pope must be followed no matter what? Is there something, a fallacy in that? <clears throat> well, there has to be a fallacy somewhere. And, um, you know, these contradictions, the human mind was not made for these contradictions. They'll just tear the person apart. Uh, they, they eventually lead to a kind of an, almost insanity, mm -hmm. you know. So they have to resolve this internal contradiction in their minds of this dilemma. And of course, we know as traditional Catholics, the Church never taught, first of all, that a Pope must be followed always and every no matter what he says. 
if he says something against the faith or against the church or harmful to souls, the Catholic Church has always said, you can't follow him. The greatest minds of the, of the church, uh, St. Barbara Bellarmine, St. Francis de Sales, uh, Cajetan, the rest of them, they've all made it very clear <clears throat> that there are times you cannot follow a man who is the Pope. There are even times, they say, when a, a Pope, a man can do things that even if he were the Pope, he would lose the papacy by that very fact. All of those I've just mentioned have said that, and the church has endorsed what they said found no problem with it, did not condemn it in any way, <clears throat> that this is a perfectly Catholic position to hold. Um, but of course, my own thought on the subject is actually not quite that, as though, well, <clears throat> you know, uh, it's not a question of whether a pope can lose the papacy. He can. He can lose the papacy by dying. He can die physically. He can die spiritually by losing the faith, publicly abandoning the faith becoming a public heretic. <clears throat> he can no longer be a member of the Catholic Church if he's a public heretic, denying truths of the faith. And therefore, he cannot be a member of the church. If he's not a member of the church, he can't be the head of the church on earth. Okay? I'm not making this up. I mean, this is the teaching that the church has endorsed throughout, throughout centuries now. But again, <clears throat> my question is so much more simple than that. And I think it's something that Francis has demonstrated repeatedly through all these last six years. He does not understand the meaning of the papacy. He talks about the Petrine office. He talks about this. He talks about that. He talks about being a successor of Peter. Some of Francis's followers even have called him the successor of Christ, <laughs> which is horrible. I mean, they even, they even suggest such a thing, you know, as though our Lord had a successor and the new son of God is Francis. Well, um, but in any case, it's blasphemous even to suggest it. <clears throat> but, you know, Francis has made it so clear, especially when he talks about the synodal church that he's creating here, that his concept of the papacy is so totally contrary to the Catholic teaching on the very essence of what the papal office is, that the man never even believed in the papacy to begin with. So... How could he accept, make a formal acceptance of an office he doesn't even believe in? That he, he rejects the true meaning of the, of the papal office, the Petrine office as he talks about it. He rejects the true meaning of it, and he has a contrary meaning that he has accepted as his role now in the Novus Ordo Church as its Supreme Pontiff, the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo. That's who he is, really. The whole world knows that. <clears throat> so how could he have uh, made the necessary step to formally accept the office of Bishop of Rome, successor of Peter, when he doesn't even believe in it, but he explicitly rejects the very concept? I don't see it. Nobody else seems to be asking that question, as though it doesn't matter. Well, it matters to me. I think it's very important. I think it's a question that demands to be answered somehow. Uh, demands to be addressed somehow. But anyway, um, we've, you know, gotten onto the, the subject again here. But I mean, how can one not get on that subject when we're talking about Our Lady's message at Fatima? It's all about what's happening before our very eyes today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Father, we sometimes, uh, actually rather often and rather frequently, we receive the question, uh, something along the lines of, you know, how do you talk to someone on a practical level? Uh, how, how do you convince them of, of the truth of traditional Catholicism versus this Novus Ordo uh, Catholicism or this modernism? You know, perhaps they've thought we're reaching the point now where there are, um, you know, most Novus Ordo Catholics, they've been raised in the Novus Ordo 100%. That's all they know. That's all they've ever known. Um, and so, you know, I think we all, that description you gave of someone who kind of has these, these contradicting ideas in the head, I think we all know someone like that. And it just, it causes them to do so many, uh, crazy mental gymnastics to, uh, you know, kind of work something out of, of how, you know, all of these things that Francis is doing, these really anti-Catholic things, how these can somehow in some way be interpreted as as being catholic and so on a practical level i think one of the best things we can do is like you said point out you know there must be a contradiction in one of these things and uh i think another another great thing that that one can do i found this to be very effective is to 
take uh, take a premise and extend it out to its logical conclusion. And I think that that is that's really evident with what Francis is doing. Where if you kind of look at the the timeline, um, you know, of, of what has taken place since Vatican II. I mean, if you took, uh, you know, John Paul II or, or his church, even Benedict XVI, his church, and you compared that with, with Francis's church, uh, the two would, would hardly even recognize one another. And I mean, if this trend continues of just, uh, you know, devolving further and further from the real Catholic faith, uh, eventually, I mean, we're already at this point where, like I said, we have idol worship going on in the Vatican, but it's only going to get worse and worse from here. And eventually... Um, it has to get to the point where it is just... Totally well, as the principles of modernism that came thundering through Vatican II, if the principles of modernism continue, they will ultimately lead to the reign of the Antichrist. Yes. Yeah. But they are the same principles that came through Vatican II that have been applied by John Twenty-Third, who died, you know, uh, during uh, Vatican II. Mm -hmm. Paul VI, who oversaw all the changes of the sacraments and the Mass. John Paul II, same principles applied all the way through. They just weren't quite as radical as the radicals wanted. Okay? Mm -hmm. Benedict XVI, the same principles were operative there. Again, they were looking for somebody more radical than he, though. <clears throat> and they finally got Francis Bergoglio in there. But they are the same principles of modernism that are operative throughout the whole thing. What I'm afraid of is that someone's going to say, well, look, you know, under John Paul II or Benedict XVI, things were so much less radical, mm -hmm. so much more moderate. Let's go back to that. Right. Okay. And just say that's going to be our traditional Catholicism because, relatively speaking, it's more traditional than what we have, yeah. see? I'm afraid somebody is going to arrive at some kind of compromise. I'm afraid the Society of St. Pius X is going to broker this, some kind of radical compromise <clears throat> between the most, like the effort to flee from the Bergolian church, um, to try to retrace their steps back to a more traditional looking Novus Ordo. <clears throat> and the Pius X group is going to meet it sort of halfway. And we're going to find this somewhat marriage, tr attempt to marry the modernist and the traditional Catholic religion. And now we know that would be a real monster, a real chimera, right? Um, but I'm, I'm afraid that this is what that's going to be given now, some kind of compromise in the form of traditional, uh, under, the, under the, the name of traditional Catholicism, in the name of traditional Catholicism, and I'm afraid people are going to fall for it. Because so very few are willing to admit the fact, are willing to acknowledge the fact that what they're witnessing now in the Francis Bergolian religion is actually the result of what began at Vatican II, or what I should say appeared on the world stage at Vatican II. It had been actually, um, you know, festering for decades before that, right? But in John the Twenty Third, it it became. Uh, well, it, it took over the Vatican. And that's when you really see, saw things begin to happen. So this is why the current stay, uh, position of the Society of St. Pius X is so, so worrisome. I mean, even though uh, Father Pagliarani has called for, a, you know, fasting and abstinence and masses being offered in reparation for what's being done, He's still pursuing a course of trying to get in the good graces and be approved by the very people who are doing these things. <clears throat> Talk about the horns of a dilemma <laughs> <clears throat> that he wants to impale everyone on. This is what I'm afraid of, yeah. where it's leading right now. Yeah. So in any case, uh, we just have to be very wary of that and, and pray to God that doesn't happen. That would be a, a, a real capitulation to the modernists. Yeah. Well, Father, I think it's definitely important to make all of these logical arguments as, as we do time and again on this program. But, you know, as you've mentioned before, for every word that we, uh, that we say in the, the logical realm, we should be uh, saying 100 words to God in prayer. And I think to kind of bring everything full circle and, and wrap up the program, I think to that's what really... You, what, to what you've said, though, Tom, you say, what does it take? What does it take? Yeah. 
Well, if Francis Bergoglio cannot convince people that he's on the wrong track and they're on the wrong track in looking to him, right, as somehow the, the, the voice of heaven, if that hasn't convinced them already of the evil of the Novus Ordo, the disaster of Vatican II and all of its anti-Catholic principles, then there's nothing I can say to convince them. Mm-hmm. And so I'll just have to uh, pray, take, take it to God, mm-hmm. and, and ask him to, uh, to please enlighten their minds, you know, and uh, also to not to clarify things in their minds, but their hearts too, if they're attached to worldly things. I think once people get, get attached to the worldliness of the Novus Ordo, it's very hard for them to give that up. Because it's so much easier to be Novus Ordo. <clears throat> Um, if you embrace the worldliness of it all. And it, that, that's what really also clouds the mind in its thinking and trying to understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. That worldliness that comes in with modernism. And certainly the, the remedy for, uh, for worldliness would be prayer. Do you agree, Father? Well, faith, open charity, yeah. uh, leading to <clears throat> certainly manifesting itself in prayer. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, the, that's the cure right there. So, have to pray. I have to go back to what Our Lady said at Fatima, right? Pray the rosary, pray the gospel. That's what it is. Yeah. It's better reliving the, the gospel events of our Lord's life, our Blessed Lady. And um, go back to the, and receive the traditional Catholic sacraments. Uh, attend the, and worship at the traditional Catholic Mass only. And reject this Novus Ordo and, and the works of the devil and all his pomps, right? And, and modernism and all its bombs, and um, and and learn the faith, learn the faith and love the faith, the traditional Catholic faith, of course. What I mean. So, there you are. If there's a message of Our Lady of Fatima, that's it. Father, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for discussing these ever important matters for us. Certainly, Tom. Thank you, too. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and also to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.